The following program contains mature subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. Turn us on and the satisfaction's guaranteed. Frank discussion with passion on CJD 800. Tonight on the program, we talk about pride all over the world, plus teaching and sensitizing the medical profession about LGBTQ. That means our LGBTQ panel is here tonight. Now, I know at the beginning of every show, I answer your questions. I left a stack of your emails on my desk at home. And so what I'm going to do is answer whatever texts come in at towards the end of the show. So if you've got a question for me about sex, love, relationships, you want to talk it out with me, we'll do it towards uh, the end of the show. And I apologize for those of you who sent in your emails, but you'll get them all answered uh, tomorrow evening on our Trouble Tuesdays. Uh, joining us tonight, we have Jean Silbriere. He's the Executive Director of AIDS Community Care Montreal. Bill Ryan, a McGill professor and LGBTQ plus advocate and new to the show, Dr. Namta Gupta. She is a McGill Medical School professor and assistant dean and advocate for student wellness. Welcome all to the program. Thank you. Hello. I know there's lots to talk about because it's, when does like pride officially like begin? I hear, but like it's all over everywhere. So I don't know. Is it like pride summer, pride month, pride week? <laughs> I mean, pride month starts uh, the beginning of June. Uh, okay. But specific to Montreal, our pride week is uh, August, August 8th to uh, the 18th. It's 10 days here. But all over the world, it's in, it's in June. Pride month, yes. Well, okay. Why couldn't we be match up with the rest of the world? Well, actually, originally, they were all at the same time, generally towards the end of June, to mark the Stonewall riots, which took place on June 24th, 1969 right. in New York City. But they also learned they were huge tourist events. And yes. so cities wanted them spaced apart because if you could only go to one... You would only go to one, but now that they're spaced across ah. five or six months, because in warmer climates they're in January or in October, okay. gotcha. then people can travel. Right. That makes uh, a lot so of sense. So every week you can essentially go to a different pride <laughs> in a different city if you have that much disposable income. There's something, well, there's something like 85 prides across Canada this year. It's a, it's a oh, huge, wow. These little cities now are having pride mm-hmm. celebrations. And I think the last the one in Canada is always um, Quebec City or Gatineau um, right before Labor Day weekend. That's the last pride in Canada. Right. Did you hear about this? I, I saw it through Facebook. People were talking about uh, doing pride uh, doing straight pride like parades and and what have you. I know we all roll our eyes when we hear that, but let's just could we just recap the meaning of pride for people? It's like you know a straight group doesn't have to doesn't need a day, right? There's a reason why. <laughs> Well, there's a meme that I saw. Is that how it's pronounced? Meme or a meme? Yeah, meme. Correct. That says, says something like, "Yes, I know." That says something like, um, "You know, if if straight people committed suicide for being straight, then that would justify having a straight Pride Day, right? And or if straight people were the victims of violence around the world because they're straight, then that would be straight Pride Day." But I right. saw someone this weekend post that, "Well, the Grand Prix or the Formula One in Montreal is is, pri- <laughs> is straight Pride weekend." <laughs> Um, I love that. That's great. (laughs) And then I had a a friend of mine who was uh, gay and went to the Grand Prix, and I was like, how was Straight Pride? Did you enjoy it? (laughs) Were you looking at them walk around? (laughs) I love it. That's great. I love that the Grand Prix is Straight Pride. Uh, Dr. Gupta, what about at McGill? Is this like, uh, do the students celebrate 
pride, the you medical know, students. More and more. I, you know, I can't really speak necessarily to medical students, but McGill has made a huge effort to be diverse. And so there's pride, uh, uh, pride activities happening there. This, I think it was last year for the first time they had rainbow grad. Mm. So actually uh, students who were LGBTQ could go to their own grad. They could, obviously there was no uh, exclusion, but so I think there's more and more around campus that's um, what I would call explicit. There's always been sort of implicit activities right. happening around, around right. campus. We've always had the groups, you know, the, even when I was there like 30 years ago, we mm-hmm. still had groups, but there were no flags around. Like people, mm-hmm. it wasn't really talked about. It was in the union building, in the basement, in the small yeah. office. Each faculty <laughs> has their group. Now I remember when yeah. I was studying at the faculty of law at McGill, we had outlaw. So the LGBTQ advocacy group, and okay. we participated in that. Yes, the engineering school has a, an LGBTQ uh, group as well, and yeah. uh, social work has had groups for years and years. And right. the equity office is very queer, so and very, very, very vocal, and extremely powerful more and more. So that's that's a huge, uh, a huge uh, plug as well. Right. Sh- it shows the evolution because I ha- I have a close friend actually who's who has been a mentor for me over the years, and he uh, came out. He was the first professor at McGill to come out as gay in 1969, and he was fired the day after he came out. Wow. And it should be noted, there are several trans uh, professors at McGill also. So that's uh, the times have changed. Mm-hmm. Uh, you wouldn't be certainly fired for that. So w- w- we celebrate pride. We all are okay with this. But President Donald Trump doesn't seem to be having <laughs> a good time with this. We just have to talk about it a little bit. I know we're all up on some of the American stuff going on. Um, So, of course, uh, you know, he's trying to honor uh, a Pride Month, but what he, the things he posts, his tweets, like he's for, he won't allow the embassies around the world, the U.S. embassies, to fly the Pride flag this year. Like it's been done for years before. So, not clear what's going on, even though they're defying. Uh, his and and one diplomat said this is a category one insurrection. <laughs> mm-hmm. I it's, saw. Oh, go ahead. Go. I saw one of his tweets recently, and it said, um, "Happy Pride Month! Very proud for all the strides that we've accomplished." And when you just look at the replies, you just see everyone listing all of the things that his administration has been doing against the trans community, the queer communities, queer people of color. I mean, the reality does not reflect what he's tweeting, and we all know that already, but. It just needs to be reiterated. And strangely enough, the American, supposedly American foreign policy is to promote the decriminalization of homosexuality around the world now. But at the same time, he's doing all of these things. Just two weeks ago, 13,800 trans members of the American Armed Forces got their discharge papers for being trans, which means they lose their medical coverage, which means even those who who had medals, they're all being, they're all being discharged without honor. Wow. Wow. So it's, it, it. It's interesting, like, as one government comes in, like, what that does. Like, you're, it's never a feeling of safety. It's like, okay, we've got, you know, gay marriage, all good, all good. And then all of a sudden somebody, you know, another uh, an, another group comes in and says, we're going to try and repeal that now. Um, like, the whole abortion crisis, like, all of this stuff. Mm-hmm. So it, it is kind of uh, scary. Yes, and it, it shows, uh, we're, we're lucky in Canada because we have constitutional protection, which in our Charter of Rights, which means that they can't be rescinded easily. It can be slowed down. The The brakes can be put on, as happened under the Conservatives a few years back, but they can't take away those rights easily, whereas in the U.S., most of these rights were accorded by Obama through an executive order, which Trump could rescind in one signature. 
He can trump it all. <clears throat> he can trump it all. Imagine. Yeah, it's scary. There was an article that I read, too, that was a bit scary. Was uh, The headline was, Trump administration is trying to strip a child of American citizenship because he has two dads. They were tra- he's trying to block a gay couple's child from entering the country. I mean, again, you know, would that... These were two, two dads who, um, I believe, adopted their child or had their child in Canada and were trying to um, patriot, not patriot, that's not the word, to, um, there's a word, I've just missed it, but to bring the child into the U.S. to get American papers. Right. I think one of them was American, one yes. of them, and, and it was, you know, one of them sperm and, and what have you, but... Again, these are all the blocks that are uh, are put up. Uh, coming up, I want to talk about uh, sensitizing professionals about LGBTQ and why that's important. And I can't believe we have to actually talk about this, but we really do because there isn't that sensitivity. So I want to talk about that. A safe place to work out the kinks in any relationship. It's Passion with CGAD 800's Dr. Lori Batito. Our LGBTQ panel tonight, we're discussing pride all over the world. Uh, we have uh, Jean Silbriere, the Executive Director of AIDS Community Care Montreal, Bill Ryan, who's a McGill professor and LGBTQ advocate, Dr. Namta Gupta, who's a McGill Medical School professor, assistant dean, and advocate for student wellness. Uh, I want to talk about um, why the the medical profession needs to be sensitized, and not just the medical profession, mm-hmm. really. It, it It's... Like the social work profession, they, I know they're already sensitized because they learn a lot about that in um, in their in, in their coursework. There's quite a bit of, of coursework in. Well, we hope that they do. Well, and depending on the courses you take and the and the options that you choose, um, you'll be more or less exposed. But the ultimate goal is to have it transversely integrated into all. Like program. mandatory, yeah, right? But but integrated in a way that it's not a special discussion but when you talk about family you talk about same sex oh yes of course course. all those things right 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 that and that would make sense i mean it would be silly not to talk if you talk about families not to talk about the different types of families Mm -hmm. that uh that are out there but i do know that in um like i get calls from from clients who ask me who still feel the need to ask are you lgbtq friendly Mm -hmm. So I, it, it's interesting. Like people are, you know, are sensitive to the fact that there may be a lot of professionals that are not. I don't know how it is in the medical uh, field. You know, it, I think that's a great question, and it's a great place to start. In my mind, whenever you have a, a health profession intersecting with the general population, um, usually it's in a vulnerable setting, right? Yes, so usually exactly. you're coming to a health profession help professional either you're sick or you're not feeling well so you're already vulnerable um so to not teach uh, medical personnel or anybody really who's who's in the healthcare p- uh, profession to not teach them sort of just general respect and an approach uh i think is 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 terrible you know we talk about human sexuality and i would argue that 
every human has a sexuality. Yeah, yes. And yet, <laughs> and you would be absolutely right. The amount right. of time that goes into that in the curriculum is so little compared to something like hypertension, which affects 10% of the population. I know. Isn't that crazy? crazy. I find that also crazy, that there is not a standard. Like, and, and I say this simply because I've been asked by many of the medical schools to come in and give like uh, grand rounds or one mm-hmm. talk. But that one talk is an hour, yeah. an hour and a half. And I'm supposed to cover every sexual dysfunction. Yeah out there and condense it in a one hour. And believe me, I can talk really, really fast, but that, and many of the uh, students have come up to me and said, this is the only time we're hearing about this. Yeah. And so we wanted to change that. And I'll tell you, I'm going to be very honest with you. This was a student led initiative. About five years ago, we changed the medical curriculum and uh, within maybe a few months, students were coming in saying, you know, you guys changed the curriculum and this was this great opportunity for us to introduce more human sexuality and it's still a big miss. And so, wow. and and who was coming but uh, students who were queer, students who felt like they had been thrown back into Mad Men, <laughs> you know, so, <laughs> exactly. every, you know, with really crazy kind of, uh, you know, every single case presentation was a straight white man in their 50s. So that's how this was built. And we created a longitudinal um, sort of healthy sexuality uh, course in first year. The biggest sort of thing that we've done is in second year, every single medical student goes through the simulation center and takes uh, a sexual history on somebody with a diverse gender or diverse sexuality. So it's been really exciting especially because it was student run. The cases were written by myself and students Um, and we basically put them into action and every single medical student goes through them. So the feedback has been phenomenal. We actually just published the research uh, in Finland about a year and a half ago, and we have a lot of people coming to visit uh, to see that simulation sort of project. Because it's not happening everywhere is what you're saying. It's It's like they want to know that they want the model to to be able to do it in their own universities. When we, when we, uh, when we presented in, in Finland, there was, there was such uh, excitement and we've shared our cases. We've shared our material with, uh, with a lot of different medical schools. And I think this, you're going to see this more and more where people are actually intersecting with simulated um, role plays as a way to get over that first hump of asking questions. And we know that, in fact, patients aren't uncomfortable with these questions. It's doctors who are uncomfortable Mm -hmm. with these questions. So if we can create a situation where young medical students are asking these questions to 15-year-old girls all the way to 73-year-old men asking about sexuality, asking about it respectfully without any assumptions or judgment, then this has been a successful program. I have a quick question. Mm -hmm. Um, where do we find this across Canada? Do you, do you know if they're in other provinces, territories? If um, this exact model yes. or no. So I know that it's not actually. I know that we also presented it at the Canadian Medical Education Conference this year. And um, again, lots of excitement. Uh, we know that medical schools often do poorly on this accreditation standard around healthy sexuality. So people are very interested in a way to try to f- teach this. It's hard to figure out how to teach this in a way that sticks, right? That yeah. one-hour lecture is great, but it's, you don't, you're never in the hot seat. You, know, right. you can be on your Facebook page throughout the lecture, whereas in simulation... You're actually you asking, uh, right. you know, a trans man if he's had a pap test, right? You have to yeah. be in that role and you have to figure out a way to ask these questions um, 
non-judgmentally with respect and face-to-face. Right. right? So. I'm just glad it's compulsory simply yeah. because there was a time, like I've met, you know, med- medical professions who are interested in sexuality who who go out of their way to, to get informed and who want to learn more mm-hmm. and so they become more experts in sexual medicine, let's say. But it's not a separate thing, It's a, but it should be. Yeah. And listen, whether you're a family doctor or an orthopedic surgeon, you are going to meet the whole gamut uh, of what's out there. And so you need to know. You need to know, you know, uh, just basic, you know, things like uh, what's your preferred uh, pronoun. Pronoun, right. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Basic things. And say your partner, not your wife or your husband necessarily. Or assume that all women have given birth to their children or, you know what I mean? Right. Just very basic things. Right. That... uh, are so important and they're not hard and they make people feel welcomed and they make people feel accepted. So, and it's, it's tiny things, right? Mm -hmm. If you think about it, it's just how you ask a question. And you're avoiding microaggressions throughout the whole process. You're avoiding microaggressions and an effect that we didn't really consider was the realization that medical students want to know this stuff. They are thirsty for this information. So a lot of the feedback that we get is thank God. Finally, now I don't feel so uncomfortable. I'm less scared to go into the clinical realm because I feel like I can ask these questions. And I'm not just asking if it used to feel like I was asking for some morbid curiosity. Right. Now I realize I'm asking them because it has an impact on health and it creates a therapeutic alliance with with my patients. That's right. It's, It's true. So many times I'll have to tell clients, look, I'm going to ask you some very specific questions. It's not because I'm a voyeur. I really need to know to to assess the situation Mm -hmm. properly, of course. But in my field, uh, it's a little different. I'm supposed, you know, they come to me because of the sexuality. But uh, certainly I know and I get referrals from other doctors where issues come up. But oftentimes other professionals are not quite sure how to deal with them or don't want to open that can of worms either. Mm -hmm. Right. Right? And we know in, in studies that I've been involved in over the years that people um, will avoid talking about certain things with their doctors. Mm-hmm. They will go to other doctors to talk about certain things. Right. They will get on a bus if they don't live in a large center and, and travel for four hours to go see a doctor they can talk about these things with and go back home and see their regular doctor and never say a word about it. Yeah. So this it's so encouraging to hear that, you know, once once because once students cross that barrier and become a little bit more at ease and they remember the role play for the rest of their lives, yeah. it's like something has changed forever in them. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, one of our cases is, in fact, a 73-year-old man who, whose wife has died and he's now he's bisexual and now he's in a relationship with a, with a man. And, you know, the, the students come out going, oh, my God, I feel like I was talking to my grandfather about sex. And I'm, I just feel like I can do that now without having that whole other thing mm-hmm. go on in, in, in my head. So it really does. I think a lot of our cases are meant to break down barriers. They're meant to to put uh, students in a situation where they have to ask those difficult questions in a way that's creative and professional, um, and that's yeah. open. And to meet other to meet people who do who are different from from them. That's right. Rather than make the assumption that everybody is like them. Yeah. Right. And you know, think about it. Right. Medical students are. Anywhere from 19 yeah, to, mm-hmm. to 23 with not necessarily a lot of life experience where sexuality is concerned. So exactly. in many ways, they're talking about things that 
they haven't necessarily reflected upon, considered, or done. So it's 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 an education that way. And well. I th- and I think maybe it'll, things will change as we get more and more compulsory sex education in in the schools because all of these things will be addressed. I mean, it's fifteen hours a week, but it's fifteen hours. I mean, a, a year, but it's fifteen hours we didn't have before. So hopefully, the more you know, if they mm-hmm. get their sex sexual health education year after year after year, by the time they enter, yeah. say medical school, it shouldn't be an issue at Listen, that point, I'm right? Things from my ten year old daughter, ah! <laughs> of course, <laughs> she's coming home telling me things that I was like, really? <laughs> <laughs> love it, love it. Uh, coming up, I want to address. Uh, I want to debunk some of the most common myths about sexual orientation. I read a, a very interesting article about that, so we could talk about that with my LG, LGBTQ plus panel uh that's uh coming up the following program contains mature subject matter listener discretion is advised from the pleasure and the politics to the hang-ups and the heartbreak you're listening to passion cjd 800 once a month on the program, we focus on LGBTQ uh, experiences, issues, whatever comes up. Uh, we have our panel tonight, Jean-Silbriere, Executive Director of AIDS Community Care Montreal, Bill Ryan, McGill Professor and LGBTQ Advocate, and Dr. Namta Gupta, who is a McGill Medical School Professor. She's the Assistant Dean and Advocate for Student Wellness. I want to talk about debunking some of the most common myths because I mean, this show is about debunking, really. Uh, how many times have we, you know confronted misconceptions how many times have we had texts all the time <laughs> uh you know asking uh, questions that are that show a an, a certain ignorance to the community uh so and by the way i should give out our text line at 514-800 if there's anything you want to ask our, our panelists or if something you want to talk about do you want to talk about pride uh, pride month do you want to talk about the story that may, was all over social media about having a uh, a straight parade, the need for that, uh, whatever whatever you want to throw our way, 514-800. So clearly there are a lot still of um, misconceptions about sexual orientation. What would you say, Bill, is the one... <laughs> yeah, you're on the hot seat. Um, like which one comes to mind for you that's like the, the maybe the most damaging or... Well, I think the whole relationship between um, sexual orientation and pathology okay. is pretty damaging because it's damaging in the way we bring up children. It's damaging in adolescence. It's damaging in self-concept and the and developing adult identities. It's damaging in terms of the way people react to you. You know, if if you can debunk that one, then the re- the rapport that exists between people and people who are LGBT will change because people often come at you, even people who consider themselves open-minded, you know, sort of say, well, something happened wrong, right? Something went wrong. You must have been abused. Wrong, or, mm-hmm. you know, can you actually change this and orient people in the right, you know, the normal way? They won't say right way because that's very judgmental, but normal right. is as judgmental, but right. more acceptable. So I think that's the one to me that's most harmful because it contains all kinds of things in it. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a big one. That's a big one. Uh, but again, that we should... Maybe we should uh, reiterate the the where we're at in terms of pathology. What you you're a really great historian. When was it all removed? When? Uh... Well, if you're looking at in the West, 
uh, kind of from a, the point of view of policy, the American Psychiatric Association removed homosexuality from the, the list of mental illnesses, we'll call it, in 1973. In When you look at the world level, um, the World Health Organization depathologized or removed homosexuality from its list of mental disorders in 1992. In China, it was in 1999. So these are all fairly recent developments. Even 1973 right. is not that far right, back. Right, right, right in terms of, you know, being seen as someone who has a mental illness. Right. And uh, interesting you bring that up, but the World Health Organization uh, recently j- removed transgender from its list of mental disorders. Yes, this year. That's a big one. Yes. It just, th- this just happened. So yes. uh, I, I think, you know, I, I was trained where it was, right? Clearly it was in the DSM. This is what we followed. Um, so I'm glad to see that, that it's uh, been removed. Now, that doesn't mean that... There aren't people who are gay, trans, who don't have mental health issues. Right. Like it's just that it that part is not what causes or what how you can say oh just because of that there's a mental health issue. Right. Because there's a lot of mental health issues due to the like as you said, Johnson, the the microaggressions and the uh, the bullying that happens and and all the rest of it that of course is going to create trauma and of course mm-hmm. is going to create. Uh, scarring scarring and and depression and anxiety and and all of that jean so what would you say is the one myth um <clears throat> mine is like a twofold answer it's associated to this concept of golden star gays and golden star lesbians those that have only slept with the person of the same sex and they haven't delved in heterosexual um, relationships and i think it's a, it's negatively associated with this idea that bisexuality is just a phase and you can't discover yourself and take time and how sexuality isn't fluid, right? Because if you're bisexual, it's you're not yet lesbian or gay. You're on your way to being a full-fledged lesbian or full-fledged gay. Right, which is not Is that not the gold true. star you get? That's the gold star okay. you get. And I'm like, I don't want your sticker. Let people <laughs> move on and live their sexuality there they want to. And it's this pride around, oh, I'm a gold star. Does that mean that this other queer person next to you is lesser than you because they've experienced their sexuality and with different nuances? Right. So for me, it's that idea of you're better than another gay because you haven't had sex with someone of the opposite. Anyway. Right. No, well, I think, look, but if you look at the research, um, it doesn't, this belief doesn't hold, right? That bisexuals are, are just gays who haven't come out yet, yeah. let's say. Although there certainly are people who have claimed to be bisexual in the process of coming out as gay, but there's a whole terminology for that, the, the transitional bisexuality, because mm. often young people are afraid Sometimes this is the sense that I get that they're afraid to say I'm gay, so they say I'm bisexual, or they may not quite know because they may have a, a, a girlfriend or a, a boyfriend, a, a opposite gender, uh, testing out the the waters and then realizing, oh, but I'm also attracted to uh, someone of the same uh, gender, and then eventually discovering, oh yeah, well no, this is far far str- like far stronger. This is really where yeah. I belong. So there's a transition where there is some fluidity. Yeah, it's nuanced, yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, it's very nuanced. So it's it's not, when people uh, talk about it in black and white. That's where it gets me. And I'm like, no, it's more than that. What I find interesting, too, when you talk about, you're talking about young people, <clears throat> I, I do a lot of speaking in high schools. And um, today, a lot of, 20 years ago, a lot of young people would talk about bisexuality in adolescence. Today, they're talking about being pansexual. Yes. Which is really oh, yeah. interesting. Yes. It's almost like that. that's replaced 
bisexual, bisexual. In, in the vocabulary of many, many young people. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and lesbian's a dinosaur word. <laughs> so as uh, someone who's identifying as the the last romantic lesbian in Montreal, <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm archaic, <laughs> quite frankly. So what? So then what's the word? Well, it's not that. I can okay. tell you, you know, so it's it, pansexual. I hear uh, queer more often queer, than anything yeah, else. for sure. You know, someone just the other day um, said to me, and then it showed how they're not in tune, I guess, with it, but they, they heard somebody use the w- word queer and they got offended for the community and like how could they use that word it's oh, so great. pejorative it's so i said no no it's, well, a, it's been know, appropriated <laughs> i remember being in a lecture about all the different uh, terms it was basically the the alphabet of, of sexuality and i think the, the the speaker was up there for about 20 minutes and talking about all the different terms and at the end of her lecture she said you know does anybody have any questions and somebody put up their hand and said you know i just don't feel represented here <laughs> and literally there was like so many different words so i think you just can't like i think it's wrong to label uh, anything in a sense so i kind of like pansexual because it allows some space yeah. it yeah. allows open it's open. And I have a very um, funny anecdote, or funny, I think it's funny. Um, mm-hmm. This happened about two years ago at Toronto. There were there was someone that was doing an internal email at uh, Corporation XYZ. I won't say who it is. And the person basically wrote, oh, the Dyke March is on this date. Because there's a trans march, there's a Dyke March, and then there's a Pride Parade. Oh, That's how wow. it works in okay. Toronto. Um, and this uh, cis straight woman made an HR complaint thinking that it was a pejorative use of the word, not understanding that this was a self-identified, taken back, taken back term. Right. And it's called the Dyke March. Yeah, right. Um, so it went all up to HR until they were like, wait, who made this complaint? Anyway, it's just interesting, <laughs> interesting. to see who gets offended without knowing the history of some right. of the words. Being a texter wants to know the exact definition of pansexual. Who wants to take well, it? Pan- Go, Bill. Pan means all. Right. So it's it's basically, I mean, if we look at it kind of in simplistic terms, bisexual limited people to to terms related to sexual orientation, right? And pansexual is including the gender identity and gender diversity under the term pan. So it's saying so I'm open to being in a relationship with anyone regardless of their gender identity or their sexual orientation. So it's it's very it's very open term and and it sort of breaks open the categories it's kind of like saying queer mm-hmm. um but in a, in a bit of a different way i have a funny anecdote just because we're in montreal um the i was speaking at a french high school mm-hmm. well actually of, you know what let's save that break. because okay. i want to hear that that okay. anecdote you always have some great stories bill will share his funny story coming up With Dr. Lori Batido on CJAD 800. Our LGBTQ panel uh, tonight, we're talking about, uh, well, debunking some of the, the myths. Let's talk about praying the gay away for a moment. <laughs> this comes up uh, often enough. But just to tell you that the research on adults who have attempted to change their sexual orientation, whether it's through religion or any other means, the treatments are ineffective and, in fact, quite harmful. That is what the research shows. Like when I'm when we're debunking anything, I like to look at the science behind it. I think people because how do you argue with people if you can't you you know like you have to show them the proof. Not that they'll necessarily listen, but 
at least the science backs up a lot of the stuff, like with gay parenting and, um, you know, you can't catch gay. Like, it's mm-hmm. not contagious. And- you know, it's hard. When I think about uh, myths, it's hard for me to, to, to sort of step outside of the, the family. I have three kids uh, with a, um, my ex, uh, but I was with her for 20 years. And, and I have to say the 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 thing that was the biggest um, eye opener in terms of myths is the idea that you only come out once because you so don't you come mm. out all the time and when you have kids you are coming out constantly in playgrounds with people who don't know anything, anything. about you yeah yeah and you know who think I'm the nanny uh, you know so really like amazing <laughs> sort of stories of coming out in all kinds of vulnerable places and in front of little children who are watching and yeah. for me, um, that that was that's a huge myth around what what lesbians look like, what gay people look like, whether or not they have kids, how they have kids, what they look like when they have kids. So yeah. it's it. I mean, I, I for as far as myths go, you know, I for me, the idea of um, same sex parenting uh, and and the, the the things that people say around around that is, is something that's close to my heart for sure. Yeah. And, I think if you look at the research, it actually shows that our children are more tolerant, more, more diverse. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, that's right. More, invo- that's ex- more involved more... emotionally with both parents. Yeah. Yes, and more emotionally intelligent okay. in many ways. Right. Because and did not become gay because their parents were gay. Yeah. If, if, <laughs> if, 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 yeah. Exactly. Right. Like it wasn't. Uh, like this is the the contagion factor. Right. right. That's. Uh, uh, which is interesting because the research does show that children of same sex parents are just as well off, if not more. Um, that says much more about the parenting qualities. You know, you can argue that every single child of a same-sex uh, of a same-sex relationship is a very wanted yes. child, and so I would say that that is an inherent difference, right? There are no Saturday sort of, mornings. Oh, there are no I'm like pregnant. backseat car. Yeah, yeah the, you know how do you turn the light on after sex? Open the car door, kind of moments. <laughs> I'm from Winnipeg. That's quite true. That's quite true. My uh, my partner and I were going through the foster care process right now, and it's oh. so extensive. The questions that they ask you in terms of uh, your parenting style, whether or not uh, how your your father raised you, how your mother raised you, um, the values they wanted to share, how are you going to discipline your children, what's what's the measurements of your room. So there's so much preparation. It's like two to three years of prep just to adopt a child. That of course this is a wanted child. Of course you're thinking about how you're going to discipline them, how you're going to send them to school. Are you going to get nannies or not? These are all questions that right. we've had to sit down and have hours and hours of discussion with one another about. So I get that well a lot prepared of is what you're talking about. You're yes. very well prepared to have these children. Mm-hmm. You too, Bill. When uh... yes, and and when uh, my ex and I adopted our son, it was 1999 which doesn't seem that long ago, but in terms of the, the, Gay adoption. the, the system mm-hmm. being adopted to our needs, it was very, it was what we call very heterosexist and heteronormative in the sense that it was, we were seen as this big exception. It had to be taken very special precautions with and mm-hmm. uh, extensive consultations and, 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 and social workers coming out of our ears yeah. for years. Wow. That's, a, that, know, that's changed, no? Yeah. I think yeah. it's changed a bit, but you know, yeah. when, when my kids went to school, I, I was, I was taking my son to grade one and, you know, I sort of met the teacher and I said, yeah, well, you know, he's in a two-mom family. And they said, oh, you know what? We have somebody else. Uh, they have somebody in grade four. And we're like, no, that's our other son. <laughs> <laughs> so, that's very yeah. cute. That's, that's <laughs> a good one. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the social workers still have work to do. We went to an info session. My partner came in late and then she went, oh, uh, so who's your wife? Oh, and then I right said, away. <laughs> I just raised my voice in front of Me? her and said, I'm the wife. <laughs> 
And then she turned red and she was like. Well, I, uh, when Quebec changed its law, I did the training of all the social workers uh, who did adoption uh, evaluations in the province. And you wouldn't believe the questions that were asked at that time. because and, and one of the typical questions was, if two men adopt a girl, who's going to brush her hair? Oh, that was, my. That was a typical example really? of people's discomfort. The nanny. <laughs> the nanny. <laughs> yes. Stop that. Wow. Yeah. Right. As if As men if. can't, right? Yes. yes. But I wow. think particularly for male couples... There was a lot of suspicion about the reasons that they wanted mm. to be ha- to become parents, as if somehow it wasn't as legitimate, and mm. that men don't have the aspirations to be parents in the right. same way that women do. I'm going to a birthday party uh, this week of uh, a couple very dear to my heart, a gay couple, two men who uh, recently uh, they have through surrogate have twins twins that are uh, turning one i'm so excited mm. uh yeah and they're wonderful parents absolutely like talk about wanting like really wanting this is uh, great i have a text here it says i find it interesting that according to society we're necessarily expected to explain and often justify our sexuality via such definitions as heterosexual bisexual pansexual gay etc whereas when it comes to friendships Platonic is the only term which suffices to define a non-sexual relationship, which we tend to take for granted and deem applicable for both sexes, genders equally. For example, what if one is lesbian but wants a platonic friendship strictly with females? Unlike the sexual relationship distinctions, there's no other term aside from platonic, which equally specifies the gender preference. Go answer. Homo sociability. Homo sociability. Yes. Oh, I was going to say like frenemy or something. Like <laughs> no. no, just friends. So what do you say? Would you like to be homosocial? Well, no, you wouldn't, you wouldn't use it. it but it, it's sort of a definition that's used scientifically to talk about close friendships with people of the same gender without them necessarily being romantic or sexual. Right, oh. right. Guys, you have been fun. Because I always learn something new when you're on the program. I always love having you on. jean Sil, where can people find you? ACCmontreal.org for all our Pride events coming up. Oh, yes. And I'm going to be joining you for Pride. I think CJD might be uh, this year, uh, be more involved. So it's competition. Yeah. Maybe we'll join up with you guys. Uh, Bill Ryan, you could take his course, uh, his courses at McGill. Why not? (laughs) In in the Department of Social Work. And Dr. Namta Gupta, if anybody has any questions for you, maybe uh, where can people find you? Namta.gupta at McGill.ca. Wonderful. Guys, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for spending your precious time with us as well. Thanks to our technical producer, Brian Kalisar. By the way, send in your questions. Don't worry, I will answer them all 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 night long tomorrow evening. So send in whatever you've got for me. Uh, You can connect with me on social media at Dr. Lori Batito or through my website, drlori.com, which uh, is where you can also send in your questions. Coming up next here on CJD, we bring you the CTV National News. Have a great rest of the evening and remember to live your life with passion. In the